Hi, Christian. How are you? Hi. Fine, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you well. Can you yes, hear me yes. well? Yes, yes. Perfect. Um, yeah, we have a few minutes. Um, I'll share on social media and everywhere that we are starting in the meantime. So, um, yeah, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for coming. And um, I'll introduce you, our guest speaker, in a few minutes. Thank you. Hello. 
Hi, Serena. How are you? Good. Uh, meet Christian. Hi. Hi, Christian. We will start in around four minutes. So thank you everyone for being patient. And again, thank you, Christian, for coming here today. This is such an interesting uh, topic uh, for me. And I think for many of our members here, we had these type of discussions. So we are really looking forward to your talk. So thank you. Oh, thank, thank you for inviting me, and I'm, I'm really glad to be here with you. It's a very interesting topic, and um, I'll mention ahead of time, I'm prone to wander into astrocytes. <laughs> but, but very interesting. And I think I'll take a sneak peek at the slides while we're waiting to get started. Um, Albert, I'm trying to bring you up, but it's not working. So uh, sometimes if you unlock and lock in again, then, then it should work. Thank you.
Okay, I think, hi Gilbert, how are you? Thank you for coming. Nice seeing you. Hi Gilbert. I think we can slowly start and then, um, yeah, go from there. So welcome everyone to the Science Society and of course, a special welcome to Christian here. And uh, thank you so much, Christian, for coming to Science Society. And before we start, I'll um, give you a little bit of an introduction so you get to know our speaker here today. So, um, Dr. Christian Pichicia is a researcher at the Enrico Fermi Research Center, and he's the PI of the project Open Problems in Quantum Mechanics. And um, he is an expert in the development of phenomenological and theoretical models for the interpretation of high precision X-ray spectroscopy data in quantum mechanics and nuclear physics. And I shared in the chat uh, his website in case you wanted to check out um, projects he's working on. Um, and um, yeah, the really interesting uh, research he's doing. And he is the national responsible for the experiment relation in the Paul exclusion principle, VIP, at the National Institute of Nuclear Physics. And uh, VIP established the strongest available constraints of several models of dynamical wave function collapse, as well as on models of spin statistic violations for electrons. He is also responsible for the Amadeus data analysis and a member of the CDARTA 2 collaboration um, at the Collider in Italy and um, of um, different collaborations at the J-Park um, in Japan. He investigates pionization models for the study of the nuclear surface and the statistical mechanics of self-gravitating systems. And he explores the roles of strangeness in dark matter halos. During his career, he published more than 180 peer-reviewed papers and he gave more than 40 invited talks, seminars, lectures, and colloquia. He organized 15 international conferences and workshops, and he's the editor of two special issues for the journal Symmetry and, and is very active in scientific dissemination. Um, he uh, went to school, um, he did his master's degree in astronomy uh, and astrophysics at the University Delhi study in Roma, and where he um, also did his PhD. So we are very honored to have you here. So thank you again. And before we usually start, we ask a couple of interview questions, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Let me thank you all for inviting me. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to be with you. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm amazed to be here. And I hope that uh, this uh, this conversation this talk will be interesting uh, obviously ask me whatever you you are curious perfect thank you serena do you want to ask the questions 
So certainly, um, yeah. So before we uh, get to the body of your of your talk today, we usually like to give the audience a, a little uh, personal side of you. Um, so, so I'm curious. Uh, do you have a Do you have a particular memory that could go back to your childhood? But what What might have sparked your original interests in becoming um, getting into science? Uh, well, um, all my childhood long, honestly, I was very interested in philosophical items. Uh, I don't know, just to mention, yeah, meditation is something which uh, was in my family since I, I'm, I remember. So that kind of questions, yes, kind of fundamental questions uh, related uh, to the topic of today about consciousness and uh, relationship among matter and consciousness, let's say that uh, we discussed at home um, a lot. My decision to study physics uh, was quite suffered, uh, to be honest, because uh, I was not as good uh, as one can imagine that a uh, person going to physics should be in mathematics. <laughs> I was super scared about the first exams of mathematics, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> yeah. Then, paradoxically, I became more and more passionate in mathematics. At the end, my curriculum was uh, mainly a mathematical physics curriculum. So I, I won this, uh, this sphere of the, of the theory. And um, yeah, but I, I, I was not, honestly, I was not decided till the end. The first year, uh, indeed, I followed contemporary courses in uh, uh, aesthetics at the phil phil philosophy Academy in Rome and, uh, and contemporary the course in physics. Then, uh, yeah, astrophysics. Uh, on, then I found my way in astrophysics, and uh, that uh, really convinced me to to stay in natural sciences. <laughs> well, that's uh, no, that's fascinating to to think of, or the the original contexts of coming into the world in a in a context of meditation and mysticism. Well, maybe that may not be the the slant but um i mean my own graduate work is in chemistry but i never quite delved much into the nuclear world you know beneath valence electrons and so forth but i've always been fascinated in um the topic that we're going to to bring today so i'm curious is there a specific path um take us from um from how you got to where you are today in the sense of um, those experiences? Well, also my career in physics uh, touched a lot of arguments because uh, as, as it was mentioned by Katarina, I actually, I started with astrophysics. I'm still involved in some researches. Then I moved to nuclear physics during my PhD and uh, about 10 years ago, I had the possibility I enter in contact with uh, with this very interesting experiment. Uh, I, I will speak a bit about you will see it's very peculiar and unique in its uh, conception, which is an experiment uh, essentially exploring uh, in general whatever kind of fundamental question we, we still have open in quantum mechanics and there are 
despite quantum mechanics is uh, so well demonstrated experimentally, we, there are really foundational issues very deep in quantum mechanics which are still unsolved. And um, then this became my main topic and uh, yeah, this became uh, somehow my experiment. I uh, presently, I, I lead it at the national level and, uh, and I succeeded to interest my institute uh, where, uh, where now I have this project called Directly Open Problems in Quantum Mechanics. And this particular relationship uh, of uh, quantumness uh, and uh, mind to me is uh, absolutely recent. So it's a work which I started in collaboration with the colleagues who, who signed the paper with me. Um, and it's the first uh, research in physics, I mean. So obviously, as I told you, my interest is quite old, but uh, involving uh, mathematical uh, uh, model and, uh, and the data analysis is the first time that I approached the problem so, so directly. And I remained fascinated and I have to say that uh, in the last months I'm more and more involved uh, in discussions uh, of this kind which are amazing. And, uh, and I'm getting more and more passionate on, on this subject which is uh, difficult to, to unclose because uh, it's very difficult to be treated uh, formally and experimentally. But I, I strongly believe that it deserves a lot of more effort in the future and I, and I will do for sure. It's certainly a slippery slope, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so I think at this point um, we can launch into your talk. The audience can follow the slides, they're pinned at the top. And um, uh, the moderators are here to, you know, help help run things. Uh, there'll be questions um, in the chat that we can take care of. And um, it's up to you whether you want to deliver a body of material first and then do a Q&A or whether you want to let, um, you know, impromptu questions sort of guide the flow. So. Uh, with that point, the mic is yours, and thank you very much. I I hope I will rem I will remember to tell you which time I switch slide, uh, or otherwise time by time remind me because I used to forget. And uh, <clears throat> yes, I think that at some point in the middle of the discussion, because I plan to give quite a long introduction to, to the case. Uh, at some point I will stop if somebody has already some curiosity to, to leave a bit of space for questions. <clears throat> so, okay. Maybe uh, to ask a question before you start, Dr. Sorry, there are questions before I start, I didn't get Yes, if I could ask a question, then, if it's okay. Yeah, sure, sure. Would you mind just giving a short summary of your talk? Absolutely, yeah. So I will start by outlining uh, a bit uh, what uh, the model developed by Hammerhoff and Perros is called the Orchestrated Objective Reduction Model, uh, what is based on. 
and uh, essentially I will end by telling you that uh, the main point is the openness of quantum mechanics. So then that will take me some slides to describe uh, this main problem of quantum mechanics, namely the, the collapse problem, the problem of measurement. And uh, then, because it's very central to understand uh, the orchestrated uh, objective reduction, uh, I will tell you the solution which is proposed by Penrose uh, uh, and Yoshi independently by these two physicists. Uh, I will tell you why the model uh, uh, is experimentally testable and what we did to, to do it, to test it. So I will speak a bit about our experiment. And then I will uh, conclude with uh, the main item. So how this measurement which we performed can tell something, uh, can constrain, let's say, the various scenarios which were proposed by Hammerov and Penrose uh, in order to explain consciousness, uh, what, uh, let's say, uh, survives in this version of the OHOR, which we analyzed, uh, and what, on contrary, uh, on the basis of this interpretation, can be ruled out. And then I will conclude with, uh, with perspectives, because, um, yeah, I prefer perspectives to conclusions, because uh, I always like to look forward for what can one do more. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay, so um, yeah, uh, this model uh, essentially uh, can be summarized in three points. So uh, how, how consciousness emerges, consciousness meant uh, like choice, up to Hammerov and Perros, uh, it uh, depends on biologically orchestrated uh, coherent quantum processes. All these words will be clear. Um, in connection with the microtubules, these structures which exist within brain neurons. So these Coherent processes, which uh, are ongoing uh, up to the model in the mind, regulate uh, the neuronal synaptic and membrane activity. And they evolve according uh, to the quantum theory that we know. I will call it Schrodinger uh, uh, dynamics, till at some point is terminated according to a specific uh, model of wave function collapse of Hammerov uh, um, uh, Penrose uh, speaks about objective reduction. So objective reduction means collapse. And this collapse model uh, was developed by Penrose and Diyoshi independently. It's called DP. I will call it DP in, uh, from now on. But very important, I want to uh, start from this question. Why quantum mechanics was involved by Penrose uh, uh, and by Hammerov also? He's studying since decades the problem. Uh, to have a role in, in consciousness. Uh, uh, according to Penrose, he, he outlined this idea already in the Emperor's New Mind and then later in the Shadows of the Mind. He bases everything essentially on the Gödel's theorem. Uh, starting from there, he, he says that there are aspects of consciousness like understanding that uh, must to, to, to be beyond computability. So just to remind uh, Gödel, demonstrated that uh, whatever theory which is capable of proving uh, basic uh, arithmetic uh, cannot be uh, contemporary consistent and complete. Uh, 
So uh, if we have a consistent theory, then you always can build uh, some correct sentence, which inside that algebraic structure, you cannot verify if it is uh, really true, nor you can falsify it. So the theory is not complete. What, uh, simplifying a lot, what Penrose uh, says is okay, but uh, Gödel's unprovable results are provable by humans, by mathematicians, which means that the human mind uh, should not be describable as a formal proof system. So uh, probably is running uh, a non-computable algorithm. And where non-computability is from, that's the main point, is from quantum mechanics where the incompleteness of quantum mechanics uh, is represented by the measurement problem. Now, let me tell you uh, that this kind of approach to the measurement uh, in connection with consciousness is uh, quite uh, the reverse of what emerged in the very early period of quantum mechanics. There is a famous interpretation by von Neumann and Wigner in which uh, uh, they, they postulated that quantum mechanics can describe uh, whatever in the physical world, except mind, which should be treated like an external observer, which is performing measurements. So quantum measurements occur as a result of the conscious intervention of an observer, of a human, maybe of an animal. There was a lot of discussion. Honestly, to be complete, I, also have to mention that the same Wigner then uh, uh, disagreed with his own uh, earlier interpretation because first of all it could lead to some solipsistic interpretation of uh, philosophical schemes obviously led by this quantum mechanical uh, reasoning and also with the more technical problems related to how describing a perfectly isolated quantum system. But the main point is that uh, what Hammerov and Penrose uh, outlined is, uh, is opposite somehow. And, and this is very amazing, the context in which this theory can be put or developments of this theory will uh, be put in the sense that uh, you have the feeling that biologic, biology evolved the structure in which, uh, which is able to orchestrate and to couple to the neuronal activity these what they call uh, physical proto-conscious events. And these are nothing by, but these quantum collapses. And these quantum collapses occur through the model developed by Penrose, by the, this DP model. So since the measurement problem is very central. As I told you, I go now to describe a bit what we are speaking about. So I'm uh, at slide uh, four. So I open this, uh, this part of the, of the talk. So 20th century, you know, uh, has seen the birth of uh, what we consider you know, really the two basic pillars of physics, but of science in general, uh, which are relativity and quantum mechanics, which both imply radical changes concerning uh, our view of natural phenomena, the classical view of natural phenomena. Because in classical mechanics, uh, classical mechanics is, uh, is, is really grounded of, uh, on our perception of the world. So it's made of bodies, we call them material points, which live in a 3D Euclidean, so flat space, 
And this space is permeated by a universal time. And by these few ingredients, few ontological ingredients, uh, you uh, quite immediately arrive to the Galilean transformations and then to kinematics and dynamics. Relativity broke completely with the past. So we understood at some point that instantaneous communication is not possible. For example, action at distance of the fields is not possible. And that we have to admit that there is a highest possible velocity, the velocity of lights, of the light, and these represent an upper limit to the propagation of any physical action, also to information, to whatever. And this led to the conclusion that uh, indeed space-time continuum is the correct framework for the description of natural processes. Relativity, both special and general, is a very close self-consistent theory. We still didn't find any contradiction, nor at the theoretical, nor at experimental point of view, and is very different from quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics, first of all, brought into the game uh, uh, chances at a very fundamental level. And then uh, it shows how there exists an unavoidable limitation to the attainable knowledge about physical systems. I will tell a bit about this. So the debate about the interpretation of quantum mechanics started uh, soon after the formulation of the theory and is still ongoing, that's, that's the point, and is grounded on the measurement problem, on the collapse problem. Imagine that uh, it is not more than 20 years that physicists admitted that collapse problem is not solved. <laughs> so it's, it's really an, an open issue. Quantum mechanics, by the way, is an extremely powerful mathematical device. It's yielding the probabilities of the result of any conceivable measurement procedure is the best uh, experimentally demonstrated theory we have in our hands. But, and here I want to use the words of Bell, quantum mechanics tells us everything about what we find, but nothing is silent about what it is in the theory. So you see here four axioms. Now this slide is quite technical, but uh, I, I will underline which are the points I really want to, to take home as a message. So we move from classical mechanics, from points in 3D space, to states described by some vectors, which live in a completely abstract space. Now, what is important, obviously, are observable, what, what we can measure. And these observables are operators in this space, which, uh, and what is important is the outcomes of the measurements of these operators, of these observables, are given by the results of their action on the vectors, on the state vectors, in particular on so-called eigenvectors, but this is not so important. Now, the second pillar, this is fundamental. If we know the initial state of a quantum system, then its state at any following time is completely determined by the Schrodinger equation. And this is an equation you will see in a second, which tells you that the system evolves in a superposition of all the possible solutions of the equation. Now, if you want to know what's the probability to measure a particular outcome, and then you have a mathematical tool to do it, it's not important. What is important is the fourth postulate, 
So what happens when you actually measure something? Because when you do that, you find one outcome, a real number, n, and then this superposition has to cease to exist, obviously, in the reality. And what happens is that is postulated, this is the famous postulate of collapse, that suddenly, instantaneously, this state vector collapses to what you measure, to the vector related to the outcome of your measurement. So go to the next slide. And here I summarize the main, the first main problem on quantum, of quantum mechanics. So the second postulate, the, the Schrodinger equation, mathematically is extremely simple indeed. And its mathematics tells us this strange behavior of quantum mechanics. First is first order. First order means that is deterministic, what I told you. If you know the state at time zero, you will know it forever. So quantum mechanics is not probabilistic at this level, it's completely deterministic in the dynamics, exactly like classical mechanics. Probability comes in because in this evolution of all the possible, of the superposition of all the possible state, then you can calculate what, which are the probabilities of the outcomes. And where the superposition comes from, because again, it's very simple, this equation is linear, which means that if one and two are two solutions, then also whatever combination, alpha one and beta two is a solution, okay? Now the collapse, the collapse is completely the opposite, is absolutely non-linear because when you perform the measurement, you have this superposition and then it collapses to, to what you measure, one or two, and is stochastic. Stochasticity is fundamental. It means that you have no chance to know before performing the measurement what will be the outcome, okay? So the next slide I summarize in a table. The first main problem, which uh, the first phase of the measurement problem. So the theory is based on two completely contradicting dynamical principles. Now, next slide. Even more grave, quantum mechanics has a big difficulty in telling, in speaking about properties. Not only about properties of microscopic systems, but according to Schrodinger, even of macroscopic systems. This is an item debated, uh, probably you know, from by Einstein and his collaborators, Podolsky and Rosen, who realized that uh, the probabilistic character of the theory is intrinsically non-epistemic. And with this, I mean that uh, uh, do the case uh, of statistical classical mechanics. There you speak of probabilities also, but the probability enter just because you have an ignorance about uh, uh, the state of the system. Because for example, if you have a gas of uh, billions of particles, you just can speak about mean quantities simply because you are not able even numerically to solve the equations, which are deterministic. Here, no, here the unknown is fundamental. Einstein says, if without any, in any way disturbing your quantum system, you can predict with certainty the value of a physical quantity, just in this case, there exists an element of reality which you can attach to this quantity, okay? But this happens never in 
quantum mechanics because you are always in a superposition of possibilities. This has the extreme consequence that you even cannot assign at a given time, a given position and a given momentum to a quantum state. This is a way to see the famous Heisenberg uncertainty. But as you will see in few seconds, one can almost never attach also the finite macro properties like location to macro objects. And this is almost incredible. Even worse, go to the next slide, there exist states in quantum mechanics called entangled states, very important in our Orcho R, for which even these individual systems possess no properties at all. An entangled state means uh, that you cannot write the, the state as a product of the states uh, which constitute it. No? So the constituents uh, cannot be considered individually. You have to take it as a whole, which means that if you perform a measurement uh, on one piece of your system, instantaneously you collapse the whole system, which means that you set, you define precisely the outcome of whatever measurement you will do on another piece of the system, even if it's very far, even kilometers. Okay, this, this was experimentally tested. Despite this, this was obviously the main argument Einstein and collaborators uh, to, uh, to tell the inconsistency. This was their famous paradox. Luckily, this does not indeed lead to uh, problems in causality. And this is essentially due to the stochasticity of the, of the collapse, because you cannot uh, preview what will be the result of your measurement. And in this way, you cannot communicate instantaneously. So causality is preserved. So go to the next slide. Um, why Schrodinger allows for superposition of macroscopic object of tables? This was demonstrated here. I sketch a very simple demonstration by von Neumann. He tells, okay, imagine that you have an observable of some microscopic system and you measure with the macroscopic apparatus M. M will be prepared in some ready state, zero, and then it will have possible states. For example, the positions of the pointer, you, you measure, imagine, I don't know, the mass, the length. Now, if you assume that Schrodinger is universal, then this means that, first of all, the interaction in between the microsystem you measure and the apparatus is linear. And second, that's fundamental because otherwise the measurement is meaningless. There should be a perfect correlation in between the state, the initial state of the system and the final outcome. No? Now, what's the consequence? If the initial state would be trivial, what, with, what never happens in quantum mechanics, just ON, then the final state is fine, is the superposition of the macro state N with the micro N. But what happens is that a quantum state is always in a superposition like m plus n. This means that the final state is an entangled state. This means that the macro apparatus, your pointer, does not possess a macroscopic definite configuration, according to Schrodinger. Now the solution of the postulate, of the collapse postulate, is what I told you. Good, but at the act of measuring O, the possibilities die except what you measure. But this is not fine again, 
and leads to the second big problem of the collapse in quantum mechanics. So not only quantum mechanics uh, seems to incorporate two dynamical principles which are absolutely inconsistent, but even deeper, it does not tell where the linear revolution cheeses and the collapse takes place. So it doesn't tell you uh, where the micro uh, world, that, where the quantum real finishes and the classical world takes place, okay? So this is very heavy. Also because, and here again, I use the words of Bell, very famous, he said, but are not we obliged to admit that uh, measurement processes are ongoing everywhere at every time? Absolutely, yes, because measurement is nothing but interaction. So quantum object interacts continuously with the environment. And this led me to slide 12 with the last concept, which is very important for us in R2R, which is environmental decoherence. So uh, these peculiar characteristics of quantum mechanics, coherence, entanglement, are destroyed when the quantum system interacts with the environment. This is not a solution to the measurement problem, it's an apparent solution to the measurement problem in the sense that obviously when the quantum state decoheres through the interaction with the environment, you, uh, it looks like collapsing, but like in a, in a Chinese boxes play, you cannot continue this to the infinite. So the universe continues to be Schrodinger and you cannot solve by this the measurement problem in general. So what are we speaking about? Uh, coherence uh, means the existence of a definite phase relationship between different states, which is preserved by Schrodinger and is absolutely necessary for quantum computing, is necessary for OR2OR. So if you look this in terms of, of, of isolation, the quantum state dynamics is not deterministic anymore, but the global evolution of the state plus the environment still remains, as I told you. What happens is that the components of the wave function of your subsystem decouple from this coherent evolution and they acquire some random phases by the interaction with the environment. And this destroys the coherence, okay? As I told you, the global wave function of the universe still remains unitary, still remains deterministic. So, for example, Penrose, in, in his paper with Hameroff, he, he argues, okay, this cannot be the, the solution to the, to the collapse because, for example, how an isolated system would collapse? It could not. Or what's the nature of the isolation? Or what's the size of the part which remains subject to the deterministic evolution? So, next slide, what <clears throat> Penrose, Dioshi, and many, many other people are trying to do is to introduce models which solve the collapse conundrum of quantum mechanics. In which way, obviously, they have to preserve all those experimentally testable properties of quantum mechanics at the microscopic level, but they have to induce the objectification at the macroscopic level. So measurement-like processes have to have the finite outcomes according to these new modified dynamics uh, which these people is building. 
the number of people which in the last uh, at least uh, 50 years is working on this is huge, so I don't even want to mention. But let me mention the common characteristics of all these models. The common stuff is that uh, the superposition should progressively break down as much as you glue together uh, atoms uh, to form larger and larger systems. And also that the modification of Schrödinger should be both nonlinear and stochastic because these are the main inconsistencies, okay? Also, you can see that you have to do this in order to avoid, for example, faster than light signaling. So again, to, uh, to fall into some non-causality of, of your theory. But the main question is what? What is triggering the collapse? And the answer of Penrose and Diyoshi is what triggers the collapse is gravity. Let me tell a bit in more detail. So both them, Penrose and Diyoshi, share this common denominator that space-time uncertainty destroys quantum coherence. This is a very old idea. It goes back to Feynman, just to tell you. Um, then it was developed uh, like 50 years ago, some first model, and then many people tried uh, to construct a mathematical model of this kind. There are many different uh, mathematical models, approaches, different interpretations, but all of them have this common divisor that the relationship among time uncertainty and energy decoherence leads to the collapse. The coherence, we said, means the destruction of interference of this quantum uh, coherently evolving state. When the observable is the energy, we speak about energy decoherence. The coherence diminishes the coherent dispersion of the energy in this case. So imagine that uh, too large coherent dispersion means that the system exhibits very strong quantum features. On contrary, if coherent dispersions are small, then the system looks classical, okay? So we know that the coherence is necessary in to, for the emergency of classicality from quantumness. But unfortunately, nature does not tell us what observable should be the primary one to induce the decoherence on the others and to cause the emergency of classicality. Classicality, in our context, read of consciousness. So the message of Penrose and, and Dioshi to take home is, if you would have a local time, even tiny indeterminacy, then this would induce decoherence on local energy. This would mean localization of massive objects. And this phenomenon appears like an exponential decay of decoherence, like the decay of quantum particles, okay? With a characteristic and predicted time, decay time, collapse time, I will call it tau. So, time uncertainty means the coherence, and the bigger the time dispersion, the faster the decay or the collapse it will happen, okay? But what's the relationship? So I told you at the beginning, uh, Penrose and Dioshi ascribe the collapse to gravity. What's the relation of gravity with time uncertainty, with space-time uncertainty? The relation is quite one-to-one. 
I mean that in relativity, we know that what is called proper time interval is directly related to the metric tensor. The metric tensor is a mathematical uh, quantity which describes the structure of the space-time, so of gravity, essentially. This means that a fluctuation of local time is one-to-one -one a fluctuation of the local gravitational potential. And from here came the visionary idea of DP. They asked themselves, but is not that maybe the gravitational potential should not be quantized? You know that uh, what people in physics is trying to do since, again, 50 years, to put together quantum mechanics and general relativity is to quantize gravity, like in string theory, in loop quantum gravity. No. Penrose and Diyoshi say, no, maybe it's the contrary. Maybe quantum mechanics requires an absolute indeterminacy of the gravitational field. So maybe, as I like to say, we have to gravitize quantum. So the point is that the gravitational potential is a stochastic variable. It has an indeterminacy. And Diyoshi also demonstrated by a famous mental experiment that the intrinsic uncertainty of the mean gravitational field is inversely proportional to the volume of your space-time cell. This is the very link in between the relativistic argument of Penrose and the, argue, the gravitational argument of Diyoshi. So if you put this result of this experiment, of this mental experiment, in the mathematical model which Diyoshi developed, this we call in the paper the simpler. With simpler, obviously, we don't want to underestimate. We just uh, mean, and on this I will speak in the perspective that it can be extended. Okay. So if you put it in the model, you predict what is the decay time, what is the collapse time. I'm at slide 17, sorry. And here is the collapse time is the simple ratio, simple in this formula, in between h bar, the Planck reduced constant, and this energy, this energy difference, this is gravitational self-energy difference among the superposed state. What I mean from, with this complex uh, uh, phrase? I mean, imagine that you have a superposition, okay, between two mass distributions in two states. When the superposition becomes bigger and bigger, evolving, evolving in time, the corresponding collapse, this gravitational energy, which I'm speaking, becomes bigger and bigger. The collapse time becomes shorter and shorter, so the superposition at some point collapses. This is exactly the violation of quantum mechanics which induces the, the coherence, which induces the collapse. Now, just to make you an example of how fascinating and successful is this model, if you calculate uh, this tau for a proton, you find that the collapse time is one million of years. So the proton is absolutely a quantum object, obviously. If you redo that for a dust grain, a uh, small one, very small one, 10 to the minus 12 kilograms, you find that the collapse time is 10 to the minus 8 seconds. So the dust grain is classical. Indeed, I localize it, I see it, I perceive it with my eyes. Okay, so now 
to show you more uh, how Penrose images this, go to slide 18. So we said reality is rooted in a three-dimensional space and the one-dimensional time, which are combined together in this four-dimensional space-time, okay? We know that the space-time is curved, we know by Einstein, and that the curvature depends on the gravitational fields of all the mass densities, of all the distribution of densities. Each different choice of a mass density gives you a different space-time. Now imagine that you have a superposed quantum state for which the mass distribution has to differ even slightly, okay? This will generate two different space times. Now, if you have a mass in superposition of two locations, the space time would be 4K. You will have the superposition of space times, which is suppressed by general relativity. It evolves in time into space time branches their separation increases till at some point you reach a critical amount and these sheets die. Just one persists, the one which persists in the physical reality. And this happens over a precise mean time tau, which I showed you. Unfortunately, this model, the DP, has a small problem. What's the problem? The problem is that uh, if you take a point particle, and you calculate this gravitational energy, this diverges. And this is absurd, because a point particle is exactly what you imagine for a quantum object. And if the gravitational energy diverges, means that it collapses instantaneously, which is contradicting, is absurd. So they have to put in the theory a parameter. Okay, This parameter is called R0, is a cutoff length which regularizes the theory, which avoids these divergences. The bigger these R0 parameter, the longer the collapse time. And this is the feature which is interesting for me, experimentalist, because my answer is, but okay, then can I test experimentally how big is this parameter? And hence, I can understand if the theory is really suitable to explain the collapse? The answer is yes, according to Dioshi. And the, here comes the, let me say, only conceptually difference in between Dioshi and Penrose. Dioshi, as I said, has a dynamics. He has a mathematics which uh, uh, describes the evolution of the states. And he uh, predicts that the collapse causes emission of radiation is called spontaneous radiation. The reason is very, very simple to be understood. So we said that the gravitational field uh, is, has fluctuations, is stochastic, no? That means that particles are accelerated. They move like in a Brownian motion, no? So there is a wiggling of the particles. And you know, when a charged particle is accelerated, it emits electromagnetic radiation, is unavoidable. This is extremely faint extremely this is why we still don't have a signal measured of collapse but is an observable that we can test and here comes the experiment moreover the smaller is r0 the bigger is the expected radiation so you can measure how big you expect r0 to be okay now the difference with penrose is that penrose 
still does not have a dynamical development of his theory, and he's seeking for a theory which does not have this spontaneous radiation. This spontaneous radiation is related to a tiny energy non-conservation that he would like to avoid in his theory. But for the moment, this is the theory which we have in our hands, and so obviously, as experimentally, this is what we have to test. Okay. Then if you want on this, we can in deeper details, but for the moment, I would like to stop here and to leave some space for questions before the second part. Yeah, thank you so much for um, the talk until this point. And yeah, please pass your microphones if you have questions of what we heard so far. So yeah, I, I guess at this point, and and I'm sure you're going to get into you know R R zero more intimately, um, but from the perspective of you know chemistry and and more particularly organic chemistry, where um, certainly particles are always interacting. There's certainly quantum effects that are required to explain reaction distributions and you know which reactions will happen. Um, I'll be very curious and perhaps I'll leave it as a comment, but maybe you want to uh, give us some more insight into this R0 parameter or how it, um, in, in what particular uh, manifestations might occur at the molecular level. Okay, uh, this somehow the second part of the talk, not somehow, the second part of the talk will answer to your question in the particular case uh, of these uh, biological systems of the microtubules because, so where R0 enters in the play, R0 regulates uh, the col the time of collapse no, of, of this theory. So where it enters uh, in biology, it enters where some uh, biological system is, uh, is taught, is supposed, is modeled to, uh, to work according uh, to a purely quantum phenomenon. So if you have some biological uh, result, and, and there are many in literatures, I'm not an expert, but I know that uh, are growing and growing the studies demonstrating that uh, purely quantum uh, correlated uh, states uh, lead, for example, in birds, the navigation, or in uh, photosynthesis, or many, many uh, other examples. So there, these are zero enters in the play because, uh, as you will see in few slides, uh, in order to be the collapse the responsible for whatever kind of process, in this case, the emergency of a conscious moment, you have to require that the collapse is caused by the specific collapse model that uh, you have in mind. Penrose obviously takes his own, no? All these collapse models have to fight somehow against environmental decoherence. So, uh, you know very well that uh, it was believed for 
tens of years that quantumness could not be involved in biology because biological matter is wet, is uh, warm, and is very noisy. And all these conditions favor the disruption of quantum coherence and of entanglement due to the interaction, thermal or whatever, with the environment. So R0 is central in this point. R0 tells you if the biological quantum system can survive, for example, environmental decoherence for a time long enough in order to be the genuine collapse to cause the emergence of the process. I hope that uh, I interpreted well your question. It, it does, and, and, I, um, and I wasn't too surprised that Penrose became fascinated with microtubules. I, I'd like to understand things at, um, you know, certainly in, at a small molecule level, there's more opportunities for these effects. Um, but in terms of the more macro structures, with, with microtubules, they, they're quite rigid and um, have interesting dynamics. And, and I can see how if, um, if biology were to evolve a means of capitalizing on these effects, which sort of underlies the, the premise there, that they would have to have a, a reproducible rigidity with resonances and natural modes that could couple. Um, so it's interesting. I, I'm, I can't wait for the, <laughs> the rest of the talk. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm not an expert of uh, neurobiology, so I, I cannot uh, go very deep in commenting this. But uh, yeah, as you know, uh, when Penrose met Hammerov studies, uh, exactly what uh, he was fascinated, they evolved a lot, they are, they, their argument from this point of view. But I think that uh, the state of the art uh, is, is that, you know, uh, they, they think that these pi electron resonances uh, form oscillating dipoles. So this is the, essentially the mm -hmm. quantum superposition. Mm -hmm that this can extend to, to the tubulins along uh, the helical lattice and more, even more, because they think that then uh, the, the quantum entanglement, because the quantum superposition, this is the quantum superposition inside one neuron, for example, and then entanglement through the junctions can be responsible for uh, even more orchestrated, articulated uh, uh, quantum uh, coherent structure, global quantum coherent structures involving a lot, a lot thousands of, of neurons. And this is exactly then the, the, the analysis, the point of the analysis which we did. So, so yes, I, I'm not an expert, but obviously they have very deep reasons for considering specifically the, the tubulins. I have a question that I don't know if it's the right time for it or not, but um, I will say I have studied physics and, and the brain some, but it's been a long time and this is very advanced and it's very fascinating. I'm amazed that people can, can even address these issues. But I was just wondering if you were to 
if you were to run into, say, a 14-year-old child or, or a grandmother who only got out of high school and they wanted to know really briefly um, why this is important and what, what this might mean for, um, you know, either for philosophy or for, for um, science that's more practical, perhaps, or what would, would you say, would you have an answer for them or would you have to say, well, wait till you've studied physics or something? <laughs> anyway, thanks. No, 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 no. I absolutely, I would not answer uh, good study physics. So obviously, uh, in this context, uh, I, I wanted to give an outline of the problem coming a bit deeper into the roles of uh, both the orchestrated uh, uh, OR2R and then how and in, in which perspective uh, you have to interpret our own experimental result and theoretical calculations on the OR2R. But the OR2R in general, uh, then obviously I cannot or better I don't want to express to you my opinion if uh, I have the feeling that uh, is true or not, is so fascinating because, uh, first of all, uh, I think is one of the few uh, non-mechanicists, not completely mechanicists, just because in re it relies on this non-computable uh, uh, foundational uh, origin model of emergence of consciousness. It has implications from the point of view of evolution, for example, or uh, from the point of view of uh, explaining uh, how much brain should be involved uh, in the uh, realization of more and more complex uh, uh, conscious moments, which for me is amazing. So it somehow explains why the structure of the brain evolved you know, in, in, the, in the structures which we have in present uh, uh, animals, in the humans and so on, but opens the window. Obviously, this is a model which outlines a scheme of emergence of a complex, I would say, metaphysical concept, consciousness. But if true, if, if, if grounded on, on physical basis, uh, it opens the possibilities for incredible uh, developments uh, in the centuries coming. Because it relates to quantum computers somehow. So really the perspectives uh, of of the model, of this model, but in general, the, the reason why investigating quantumness in mind in, in relationship to, to, to brain are, uh, are unlimited, I think, and are incredibly fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, this is fascinating. It's really got my my uh, my brain uh, challenged and uh, interested. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Joyce. My first year at university, I got a book called uh, "The Holographic Universe," 
and it's um, it's a really good read. It, it actually um, is good for the imagination while reading. And so since reading this at a very young age, um, it like kind of primed my mind to, to be able to comprehend or think this way. Um, so if anyone's interested, it's, it's a book called The Holographic Universe, uh, Michael Talbot. Um, yeah, sorry, it was a bit disturbed. I'm not sure if uh, what was the question. So yeah, I'm I'm not an expert, but I'm aware about this. Uh, it's, this is another very interesting uh, approach. Uh, I think it was developed originally by Pibram, and he collaborated also with uh, with Baum, uh, who obviously put uh, a lot of the part concerning quantum mechanics. Uh, um, yeah, they, they find, they, they conjecture that brain processes have similarities with the storage of information in a hologram. And then they develop this uh, holographic brain theory in which the brain is assimilated to a holographic storage network and consciousness uh, also here uh, emerges somehow from quantumness, from quantum processes in between the, the brain cells. It's it's very fascinating. So if there aren't any other quick questions about the introductory part of the talk, perhaps we can move to the um, the the second half of the talk and we'll have another QA after. Okay. Great. So Summarizing where we arrived till now, uh, my point was, okay, this model uh, needs to introduce this cutoff, this R0, which is very central in the model, and as you will see, central in testing the R2R. And my question was, can we test this R0? We, we can, because the theory is supposed to, to come with the emission of radiation. So the collapse comes with the emission of radiation and the radiation is more and more abundant uh, as much as R0 is small. And R0 was predicted at the beginning to be very small, to be of the order of the dimension of the diameter of a nucleus. So we are speaking about 10 to the minus 15 meters. Okay, so what we, did we do? We had to design an experiment which is extremely sensitive to measure tiny, tiny signals over huge backgrounds. So the first thing, we performed it uh, in what I like to call the cosmic silence. This is this amazing laboratory. Uh, is an under-mountain laboratory. It's called Gran Sasso because it's, it's built in the heart of the Gran Sasso mountain in central Italy, where thousands of meters of granite rock shield the lab from the cosmic rays. The cosmic rays is this flux of particles, mainly uh, light nuclei, which are investing the Earth constantly they interact in the atmosphere, so they create uh, cascades of particles, particles not existing in the standard, in the common uh, reality. These are muons, uh, mostly, on the Earth. 
And imagine that in the mountain, the flux of these muons, which we receive, your, our body is constantly uh, traversed by these cosmic rays, uh, is reduced of a factor one million. So this is the first necessary ingredient, because imagine that this background is huge at the sea level. For example, it's impossible to perform this experiment. So there, in the mountain, what remains is the natural radioactivity. You know, the rocks radiate, have isotopes, they radiate. Then what we did, we calculated what is the expected rate of this spontaneous radiation predicted by the theory, okay? And this was very important because you have to imagine that uh, uh, this mathematical expression of the rate, what's the rate? The rate is the number of photons that you expect to measure per unit time per energy, okay? This depends a lot, for example, on the energy range in which you do the measurement. So we optimized our energy range in between one and four MeV, okay? Imagine that, for example, uh, if the wavelength of this photon is bigger than the distance in between the emit particles, then they emit quadratically. And this is exactly what we, we enhanced the expected rate by putting ourselves in this energy range, okay? And this energy range exactly corresponds to a distance which is in between the nucleus and the dimension of the electronic orbits, these to avoid cancellations. Then I told you, uh, you have to have the purest possible materials because you want to measure, you want to measure nothing. That's the goal of the experiment, essentially. So we use the uh, detector, which is indeed uh, the purest material existing on the earth, is, in, is an artificially uh, produced crystal of germanium. And also we shielded it with layers and layers of uh, ultra pure materials to shield them from this radiation from the rock inside the mountain. Also, we flushed it continuously with, with boiled nitrogen to keep everything at cryogenic temperatures, no? because uh, then the, the detector operates much better at very low temperatures. Still, despite, uh, uh, sorry, I'm at slide 25 now. Despite all this care which we put in the real realization of the setup, you still measure something which is not new physics, is not uh, necessarily the collapse, for example, but is few remained radionuclides, whatever, background which still survives all your efforts. So in order to be even more precise, we put on a simulation of all this physical apparatus, simulating all the known physically standard known emission processes which are ongoing in a virtual copy of our setup. No? And we succeeded to build a spectrum of what you expect to measure, which is known apart from the collapse, apart from the spontaneous radiation. So at the end, you put all this together. So your measure spectrum, the simulation, the theoretical prediction, everything. And you make a comparison based on some statistical model, a Bayesian model in this case. What we arrived to tell to the world. We arrived to tell, look, we cannot measure a signal of collapse. So this is called uh, technically, we don't measure a three sigma 
signal of collapse because we measured essentially zero. But by this zero, we can put an upper limit, uh, sorry, a lower limit on the size of R0. Why? Because as I anticipated, the smaller R0, the biggest the radiation. So if you don't measure radiation, you can say, look, then it means that R0 is to be at least as big as, how much? As big as a hydrogen atom. This is enormously bigger than a nucleus, obviously, is 10 to the five, five orders of magnitude bigger than the typical dimensions of a nucleus. In particular, this limit was three orders of magnitude bigger than the previous experimental results. And this sensitivity is enough, as I will see, as you will see in few slides, to tell something on the Orch OR. So let's go to the core of the Orch OR. So let's go to slide 29. Again, let me repeat the hypothesis. The hypothesis is that the wave function collapse takes place over a time mean time, this tau, which is h-bar over this gravitational self-energy. Then, the quantum superposition has to be orchestrated because biology, we have to be capable of integration computation. And very fundamental, this has to be isolated from the non-orchestrated environmental decoherence. This somehow was anticipated in a question before. What are we speaking about? We are speaking about that we need to be, to have in coherent superposition, a sufficient amount of microtubule materials such that this... So that this self-gravitational energy, undisturbed by the environmental decoherence, results in a collapse on a time scale of the general order of a conscious experience. And Hamerov and Penrose take as order of magnitude, tau should be of the order of half a second, 10 to the minus two seconds, obviously motivated by plenty of studies on EEG fre frequencies, visual gestures, reported conscious moments, and so on, okay? So again, why is environmental decoherence so important? We remember that Penrose told the, the, that the process which leads to the emergence of consciousness has to be a non-computable process which should not be related to environmental decoherence, which is a random computable process. So in order for the basis of OR2R to, to be effective, the reduction, the collapse of this collection of microtubules in coherent superposition has to occur through the specific Penrose collapse model. So environmental decoherence has to be avoided within at least the time tau of the emergence of the conscious experience. Now, we didn't go, and I will not go in details of this uh, relation with uh, environmental decoherence. Amerov and Peros, for example, in their uh, review uh, 
paper on fees of life reviews of 2014, they give several, they report several studies uh, for which quantum coherent behavior uh, can be sustained in biological systems, even in these uh, surprising conditions I was uh, mentioning before. Now, to tell something familiar for whom uh, is familiar with quantum, quantum computers, uh, what's the, the parallel? In quantum computers, we know information is not just represented in bits, one and zero, but during this uh, uh, calculating process, which is deterministic, deterministic, also quantum superpositions of bo both zero and one, the qubit, the quantum coherent superposition, and even large-scale entanglements among qubits you know, uh, enable to do this complex parallel processing. Then at some point, some quantum state reduction occurs, and the output is a definite uh, classical bit, is a measurement. Now, in a pretty same fashion, this non-computable uh, Dioshi-Penrose collapse would induce consciousness and according to the studies of Amerov, also before I commented a bit, the perfect actors for this coherent superposition to take place should be microtubules within the neurons. So very suitable candidate sites for quantum processing. So a moment of conscious experience, I'm in slide 31, uh, uh, emerges from a collapse event which destroys the coherence in this previously deterministically Schrodinger evolving uh, quantum state of tubulins in neurons. Current, the, this coherent quantum processes correlate and regulate the neuronal synaptic and membrane activity. So how we have to calculate uh, the gravitational self-energy to put in our tau, no? We have to calculate from the difference between the mass distributions between two states of tubulin in superposition. But you know very well, matter is not homogeneous at all. The, ma the, the mass is concentrated in the nuclei. So Hammerov and Perros suggest three ways to calculate this self-gravitational energy. For the superposition of the tubulin, you have these tubulins in this quantum superposition, coherent, no? separated at three possible levels. One, the first is called partial separation, which means the entire smoothen out protein. The second, at the level of the diameter of the atomic nuclei, and the third, at the level of the nucleons, of protons and neutrons inside the nuclei. But they say that the no dominant effect should be the second one. Now, this separation, atomic, the nucleus uh, of a carbon, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the diameter of a carbon nucleus is 2.5 Fermi, 2.5, 10 to the minus 15 meters. So one millionth of billionth of meter. The reason for carbon is complex. There is the obvious one, obviously, carbon is the substantial component of uh, chemical composition of the tubulins, but uh, uh, again, we said few words before, there are physical mechanisms 
in tubulins according to, to Hammerov that may be able to dynamically prepare these carbon nuclei into these coherent spatial superpositions of the order of a Fermi. The point is that we are at slide 32. Now calculate uh, this uh, collapse time. So calculate this self-gravitational energy. It has quite a simple form. Okay. You put the mass of the carbon, you put this separation, and to obtain how, how many tubulins you need in superposition, you have to divide by the number of carbons for each tubulin, 10,000, and for the number of tubulins which are needed. No? You equate this all to the time of a conscious experience, for example, your 25 milliseconds, if you take 40 Hertz uh, gamma synchrony conscious moment, and Amerov and Peros end up with uh, 20 billions of tubulins. Now, one neuron contains 1 billion of tubulins, but they say just a fraction of tubulins per neuron are likely to really be involved in this quantum superposition. Namely, they say that fraction which is in dendrites and soma. And they take 0.1% of the tubulins per neuron to participating to this process. Okay? To be coherent for 25 milliseconds. And then they end up from the number I told you before, that you need 20,000 neurons no, to be required to elicit this orchestrated reduction. Now, the fascinating point, as I told you before, if, for example, you would have uh, smaller values of tau, you would need bigger amounts of brain. No, this is very interesting. So if a conscious experience is deeper, somehow we can expect, then you need a bigger amount of mind involved in this experience. Now, what about, uh, uh, we said, assuming that the microtubule quantum state occur in a specific brain neuron, how could it involve microtubules in other neurons in the brain because you need uh, 20, according to Hammerov and Perros, 20,000. And as I said, they answer, okay, but uh, you can have uh, quantum states which extend by entanglement between uh, many neurons through the gap junctions, for example. Okay, so they solve this way. Now, arrives our measurement. So as I told you, we have in our hands a dynamical theory of gravity collapse, this Dioshi Penrose, and we, by that, we have a, an experimental limit on our R0. So we can uh, examine a, let me call it a version of the R2R, in which you take into account for these dynamics and you take into account for the fact that this decay time central in the uh, development of the O2R is determined by the R0 parameter. Now, the crucial point, uh, I'm a slide 33, is that the three levels of spatial separation, which are contemplated by Hammerov and Penrose, exactly correspond to the, three, to the levels uh, of spatial resolution 
which are given by R0. And the collapse time crucially depends on R0. So if we speak about partial separation, atomic nuclei separation, nucleon separation, this corresponds respectively to internuclear, to nuclear, subnuclear levels for R0. No? In particular, the result uh, which I mentioned before, the 20,000 neurons, uh, is obtained for the option called B by then. No? So when you require that the mass density resolution is as fine as the diameter of a carbon nucleus, 2.5 Fermi. But as I mentioned before, we put a limit which is extremely bigger. So we constrained R0 to be bigger than 5 times 10 to the minus 11 meters, so 10,000 times bigger than a carbon nuclear radius. Okay, And take into account that the larger is R0, much larger, we see, the longer is the collapse time. So what's the consequence? We go to slide 34. Apart from the calculation, which obviously is not straightforward, but the consequence it is. The consequence is that uh, the mean collapse time for one tubulin becomes much bigger. Consider the fact that uh, the nuclear separation is much, much smaller than this minimal resolution R0, you find that the collapse time for one tubulin is 10 to the 22 seconds. This means that the number of tubulins required to be in coherent superposition for a collapse time of, for example, 25 milliseconds is uh, of the order of 10 to the 23. Now, remind that you have 10 to 9 tubulins per neuron. You have 10 billion of neurons per brain. And if you assume that as Hammerov and Perro suggest, 0.1% of the tubulins per each neuron are really involved in this quantum uh, superposition, then you end up that you would need for to be collapsed for the emerging of a conscious moment uh, 10 to the 17 neurons. Too many. Even if you assume that all the tubulins are, uh, are involved from the neuron, still you are at 10 to the 14 neurons, which are many more than, than what are contained in the human brain, even if you assume, obviously, that this estimate has, is affected by an error, but consider that the lower limit which we put on R0 is a lower limit at 90% of probability, so the error is tiny. So following this consideration, it looks like uh, the tubulin separation at the level of the atomic nuclei is, uh, is not favored at all. It's, it's discarded. Uh, certainly also is ruled out the separation at the level of the nucleons because in that case it's, it's even worse. So the collapse time is even larger. But then we analyzed the, the other scenario, the scenario called partial separation. So we took uh, the whole smoothen out protein as an homogeneous bulk with the size L, and we analyze the two possibilities you have in this case. You, you, you can have both, that the size of the microtubule is much bigger than, uh, of the tubulin, sorry, is much bigger 
than your spatial resolution. In this case, you still need huge amounts of brain, about 10% for a 25 millisecond collapse and 1% uh, if you take 500 milliseconds. While if the, uh, the size that you take is of the order of the resolution of the R0, then you, you need 1 million order for 25 milliseconds conscious moment or 10 to the 5 neurons for uh, 500 milliseconds. So let me comment on this last number. Consider that uh, this amount of matter is much bigger than whatever was actually realized in current uh, uh, superposition state laboratory, I mean experiments, achieved with optomechanics, macromolecular uh, interference, interference and, uh, and this kind. But here I really want to stress that uh, we don't know if biological matter might find the way. There are many proposals, I'm, I'm not an expert, so I will not go into the detail, but the involvement of water or whatever biological uh, uh, mechanism could still sustain you know, the survival of such amounts of mass against environmental decoherence. And this is somehow what, for example, it was uh, underlined in, in the paper of 2014 and, and the following ones. I refer to this because it's a very nice review from Hammerhoff and Perros. So let me go to the last slide. Uh, as I told, uh, um, I, I want to call it perspective because uh, I think that uh, the conclusions uh, in, in the context that I made it very clear of our analysis, quite uh, straightforward, is clear. What's the, the perspective? First of all, uh, one of the typical questions is, is the Ocho R ruled out in general? And to this question, I answer uh, clearly no. For two main reasons. Uh, first of all, as I said, this analysis realizes on a version of the Orcho R in which we take a dynamical model, but Penrose is seeking for the mathematics for his idea, he hopes, which avoids spontaneous radiation. On this I can comment a bit because it's it's a bit critical point. Uh, I just want to comment that spontaneous radiation, by the way, is uh, foreseen by each model of dynamical collapse that we have in our hands till now, um, tens of models which we have, all of them have this effect. And there are some uh, uh, very fundamental mathematical motivations for this, but obviously uh, Penrose is, first of all, you know very well, a Nobel Prize, and his idea moves from general relativity while uh, all the uh, dynamical collapse models in our hands are presently non-relativistic. So obviously, if uh, him or he or she or whomever else 
would succeed to develop a theory of collapse without uh, these tiny energy non-conservation, these would be a significant breakthrough in our understanding of nature. And these obviously would mean that all the scenarios, not only the partial separation, would become far more plausible. But then I also would like to mention that, uh, uh, and this uh, immediately involves uh, perspectives in our work, uh, in the group which did these analysis and in my work, uh, the model, uh, this dynamical model which we used by Dioshi is ongoing, is, uh, is being uh, farther and farther developed. And what we are, for example, presently doing uh, is looking for what are called dissipative and non-Markovian generalizations of this model. Just because, you know, the physics proceeds like this. You have a model, then an experiment put it, puts it in, in trouble. Our value for R0 is very, very big, so the model is in trouble. You need to extend the model. So the next step will be to, uh, and this is what we are presently doing, to see what this means for the spontaneous radiation, these generalized models, and what it predicts for the OR2R, which will be the consequences in the scenarios for the OR2R. So, and with this, I conclude. Maybe I was also too long, so I hope that you enjoyed, and uh, please ask me whatever curiosity you have. Thank you so much, Christian, for this um, really detailed and really amazing talk you gave. You explained really well all the theories behind, so um, we really appreciate that. And um, yeah, thank you. And yeah, please flash your microphones. Uh, if you have a question, uh, Serena, Dr. Shah. Go ahead, Dr. Shah. Thank you, Serena. Thank you so much, Christian. That was absolutely very amazing work and it takes time that we understand it better my question from you is about the coherence uh, superposition that you just explained and we know about the i mean conscious um, conscious electromagnetic information and there is a um, phase locking of the neurons which is happening there uh, and using that if we want to see that uh, position superposition as a matrix does it um, explain the uh, random matrix behavior, for example, if we want to see that? Because I see that you put some couple of the equations there and it just brought this uh, idea in, into my mind. I was just wondering what's your opinion about it? Yes, it's, it's, it's a very complex question, but I, I think that uh, superposition can, can also explain uh, this. Yes, I, I agree with you. Can, can be a hint for, uh, for this kind of, uh, of process. So if anyone else want to ask a question, I can back if we have a time later. Thank you. I have a question, but I'm just getting to a phone charger, so my phone doesn't die. Sorry, I cannot hear you anymore. 
Oh, he just mentioned he's about to charge his phone. Ah, okay. Uh, ah, okay, okay. So, so um, uh, I had some a question, um, and it's it comes from um, you know my my thoughts on you know looking at micro microtubules and you know resonances and stuff. We had a I was struck by a speaker that we had in um, some time ago that was looking at long-range oscillating dipole interactions that arise from natural modes in proteins. And um, the fascinating aspect to that was that if, um, if those natural modes are oscillating at um, close to the same frequency, there's a, a 1 over r cube dependence rather than 1 over r to the sixth. And that was, was interesting in the sense that the long-range effect that they were able to measure experimentally on the order of 100 nanometers um, was uh, suggestive of perhaps microtubules in resonance across different cells and and that the an oscillating dipolar coupling could extend um, from different microtubules. Oops, I lost you. I hope that I'm still connected. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you, but Serena, I think Serena had some issues. Okay. So, uh, from from what I heard, yeah, extremely interesting, this, uh, this study that you mentioned. Indeed, uh, 40 nanometers uh, means uh, more or less uh, we are in the range, uh, uh, in the scale of ranges that uh, we would need to, to motivate uh, uh, the OR2R emergence. Uh, uh, I would be curious to know for how what are the time scales uh, these uh, quantum superposition was uh, was measured for for how long? Well, in this case, what well, was it? It was an experimental effect that would allow uh, diffusible proteins that were in resonance to aggregate, and and so that it wasn't a strictly diffusional mechanism. It was more of a driven type of diffusion uh -huh, um, but if they but that was uh, and and so they could you know their dynamics over time would be affected by this this process um, but it's also interesting in the sense that it, even if at just at the microtubule level um, astrocytes also have the cytoskeleton component and they are um, involved in driving neural synchrony and phase lock processes through um, resonating calcium waves, oscillating calcium waves. So there, there are, in terms of these other processes, um, there are, you know, many candidate mechanisms that could extend, you know, this, uh, this range. But whether, whether there is a necessary quantum effect there is, is an open question. And, uh, it, you know, given given a variety of mechanisms of of extending, uh, you know, resonance throughout, uh, you know, the brain and and you know driving 
thought processes and cognition, but you know, particularly consciousness. Um, wonder what you, what thoughts you might have on those opportunities, uh, even in a classical sense. But what, uh, what opportunities that may offer these quantum effects for, in this context? Yeah, I I completely agree with you. Um, it this is a field fascinating from the point uh, from the experimental point of view in uh, biological, uh, biophysical, uh, on uh, really a multifaceted uh, world. You know that uh, the main proposal uh, for uh, for the falsifiability of uh, or to are by Hammerov and Penrose is uh, this to, to somehow uh, experimentally test these interference beats in tubulins and uh, microtubules and then to search for some correlation between uh, anesthetic uh, damping uh, of the beats. No? So if there is correlation uh, in between the action of the anesthetic uh, and uh, the frequency of the quantum correlation. It is not very clear to me, so obviously this correlation is super clear and is fascinating, it's not clear to me how experimentally still uh, this I was also discussing uh, with uh, with expert in uh, biology, biophysics, neurobiology, how to transport uh, uh, biological matter in a physics experiment of this kind, uh, in a lab experiment of this kind. Because you know that uh, Perros was the first uh, himself uh, to, to propose uh, an experiment uh, to test uh, his uh, his gravity related collapse no he proposed to put, put in superposition an object of the finite mass um, 10 to the minus uh, I don't know 12 kilograms uh, with a decay time uh, which he expects to be comparable to to the typical decoherence times but as, as we know all the uh, experiments nowadays uh, are far from that uh, or from the point of the view of the mass or from the point of view of the uh, distance of the superposition or the time you keep the superposition on and so on. But again, my mm, main uh, curiosity, I think what, uh, what everybody thinks is that, by the way, uh, even top laboratory experiment uh, can tell nothing about biological matter because some process in biological matter, which uh, we uh, still don't know, can be central and we cannot reproduce it in, in laboratory. I don't know. So I, again, I'm not an expert, but this is my feeling. Yeah, so, so a final question I thought was so curious about your, uh, your value of, of R0 being about a half an angstrom. And that struck me as interesting in the sense that that's about a third of a carbon-hydrogen bond length. And I'm wondering, it, it, you know, when I saw that number, I'm wondering, well, per, is is that why we have so much certainty in chemistry? <laughs> um, in that, um, you know, 
molecular structure holds together so cleanly and and predictably except in you know cases that you know chemists love to construct but um any comment on the scale of your r0 parameter and its relation to molecular structure unfortunately is not uh, it cannot be one to one related in such a straightforward straightforward way because the you have to imagine that the deep mean so these are zero has not really to do with uh, with the structure of matter no nor nor the quantumness uh, of the structure of matter it is uh, a sort you have to imagine uh, of smearing out uh, of the quantum description uh, of a wave path is the minimal resolution that you have on uh, a stationary solution of the schrodinger equation i don't know if uh, so it's it's quite uh, abstract as concept um, how can i imagine that for example the first proposal of penrose to solve this problem exists an equation which is very fascinating it's called schrodinger newton you take the schrodinger equation and you put uh, a gravitational self-interaction term no so generally gravitation is not considered in quantum mechanics because the effect of the of the coupling constant is too small to take it, it into account with respect to to the other forces uh, in, uh, in quantum field theory but the effect is the collapse, no? So if you put uh, this, uh, which is a nonlinear term, then at the end is not, uh, it doesn't work completely as a collapse model, the Schrodinger-Newton for various reasons, but is useful for a lot of things. And a very interesting thing is that if you solve this equation, you find uh, like a basis, you find what are called solitonic solutions, stationary solutions which mimic uh, this uh, basic resolution that you have on the quantum packet uh, if if i uh, if you allow me this uh, this description so these are zero you have to take in this sense obviously as i told you it enters uh, then in all the predictions uh, of this collapse model but then from here to relate it to chemistry, uh, we are still far. It's a fascinating question, obviously, and, uh, and we have to investigate. But the phenomenology of these collapse models is just right at the beginning. So now they are trying to explain why the collapse occurs. Then uh, obviously you can compute no? uh, based on that. So because it can have an effect, no? Uh, the main point of all that introduction uh, is quantum mechanics works perfectly, describes nature perfectly. But what if some parameters, which are unknown in the uh, present formulation of, of quantum mechanics, uh, can have, as you say, uh, some effects on things that we measure and maybe they are not just uh, casual uh things they they are related to some hidden parameters in the theory which we don't know because quantum mechanics is not the ultimate theory is a very good approximation thank you 
Yeah, thank you so much for for those answers and these questions. I we had um, a while ago also I guess speaker talking about mechanisms of levens and how they could they are this fundamental building blocks and um, they demonstrated that flavin based autofluorescence um, they could measure them and they were kind of magnetic field sensitive and we also kind of um, discussed the, the um, electron spin selective um, recombination of these and um, some if there's maybe some quantum effects and living cells that are reflected in these building blocks are you um did you ever think about flavins and take this maybe uh, calculate this in the model if you maybe if we would have less or more flavins available and if that kind of would fit you know be more realistic than micro you know the amount of microtubules that you calculated is quite you know quite a lot so it's Kind of you know that's where we get the collapse from that it's kind of too many that we would need to 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 be realistic so i was thinking if you combine microtubules with flavins if that would maybe be more a more realistic combination that's a very good suggestion thank you and uh, i will ask you i will put my email here on the chat and i will ask you for these studies so so we can uh, we can investigate what could be the the um, yeah if if you also consider them not only microtubules if if these could make the the scenario globally more realistic yeah thank you for the suggestion no we still didn't study this yeah thank you so much um Carlos, Einar, uh, and Kyle, did you have questions? I have no questions, thank you. Sorry, I cannot hear you. Yeah, I think- I, I was gonna say, this is, uh, I have no questions, but thank you so much for such an interesting talk. Thank you. Einar, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, hi everyone. Uh, so, just a quick question, because when it comes to consciousness and actually what relates to to be conscious in what we... Sorry, I hear you really bad, just a uh, few words interrupted. Yeah, you're in the matrix a bit. Oh, sorry. You hear me now? Barely. Yeah, I'll try again. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the quantum of um, uh, of consciousness, uh, which is basically related to uh, human being, or as I in this uh, this uh, um, Gauss's flux theorem of gravity actually makes a difference. Is this fault? Sorry, I uh, couldn't understand uh, exactly the question. I heard uh, that you refer to some uh, gravity theorem, but uh, I didn't get. 
maybe uh, somebody else from the audience understood. Sorry, could you repeat? Uh, I've heard before from my connection, so pardon me, my, my, uh, my connection. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, you're breaking up. I can't quite hear it either. Okay, no, I'm sorry, because maybe the question was related to quantum gravity. I, I didn't get. Try again. It was related to uh, Gauss's fluxus theorem of gravity. If it's related to 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 Adam's behavior and uh, superpositions and whatnot. Yeah. Ah, sorry. Okay. Uh, no, as far as I know, it's not or still doesn't have connections which we investigated at the moment. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's great to, um, to, to hear your voice again. I, I kind of um, listened a lot close, a lot more closely to what you were saying about, um, about radiation. And, and why I, I love this is because I, I can get creative with my philosophy. So like Wissom down there, for instance, I sent him a message. We are radiant beings in a radiant world. And because there's radiation all around us. And um, so, you know, one of the, one of the things that, um, that I really appreciated was that you're considering this and you're considering this very carefully. So, um, you know, like it, the quantum theory absorption and emission of radiation announced in 1900 by Planck ushered in an era of modern physics. He proposed that all material systems can absorb or give off electromagnetic radiation only in chunks of energy, quanta E, that are these are proportional to the frequency of the radiation e equals hb uh the constant of proportionality h is also noted above called planck's constant so i'm I, i'm really appreciative that, that you've actually considered this um first quick question did penrose just omit it because he couldn't measure it is, is that why he omitted it um Okay, so I, I answer first to this question. No, 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 no. <coughs> Perros has a, a very... Can you hear me? Loud. Ah, yeah. sorry. Uh, um, no, 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 no. Perros didn't uh, discard radiation because uh, it, was, it didn't receive still uh, an experimental evidence. Uh, uh, he has a deep reason, and the deep reason is not trivial. So uh, let me put it uh, in this way. This uh, radiation is related to a tiny energy non-conservation in the theory. Now you can imagine that when a physicist hears energy non-conservation, is not happy. No? Nobody of us could be happy about energy non-conservation. In reality, my opinion uh, is much less uh, critical uh, on, uh, on this, uh, from this point of view. Okay, I can mention, uh, as I told you, very fundamental mathematical reasons uh, uh, related to the same structure of quantum mechanics, why the radiation should be there, but I don't want to enter in that. I tell you uh, another way. Imagine what happens with friction. 
No? In friction, you have the interaction of a system with an environment, and uh, friction that is not related to energy non-conservation is a false energy non-conservation. You know that this energy non-conservation is then recovered in uh, hidden degrees of freedom. You have heating, no? for example. Now, what are we speaking here about? We are speaking about essentially the fact that quantum mechanics, this is a question more than, uh, or obviously for me working uh, in this kind of models is more than a question, but in general, I want to leave it as, as a question. Is quantum mechanics the ultimate theory of nature? Maybe not, and we have strong evidences that is not. I tried to explain you the, the main, main reasons why we believe is not. If this is not, then there are degrees of freedom that we don't know, no? There are, so, there are other models of collapse which are exactly hidden variable models, uh, so-called like Bohmian mechanics, for example. Just to mention an extremely interesting uh, uh, theory, the uh, spontaneous radiation, so this tiny energy non-conservation, somebody relates uh, to the uh, dark energy. So now I don't want to say that this theory is correct or to prefer one to the other. It's just to mention that uh, uh, me personally, I'm not so critical for the existence of a tiny non-conservation in these generalized quantum mechanics models because it could be related to effects which are comprehensed, are understood in a higher in a more general uh, uh, theory, which is up to come. These are phenomenological models. Obviously, the reasons of Penrose are, are serious. So it's clear that uh, if he comes out with a consistent uh, dynamical model, uh, which avoids these energy non-conservations and contemporary solves the measurement problem, then even better, there are, uh, so even better, uh, it's, it's questionable, but obviously uh, we expect from a genius like his to, 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 to be absolutely capable to come with this solution soon. Uh, so uh, I hope that I answer to the question. There are, there are fundamental reasons why people can dislike uh, the, the radiation. There are as well very fundamental reasons why the radiation should be there. And uh, if you want me to mention the reason is that uh, the collapse is Poissonian. Maybe, you know, uh, that uh, whatever decay of whatever quantum unstable state is exponential, the fact that is exponential like this collapse is related to Poissonianity is called of the process in time. The fact that the process is Poissonian uh, mathematically leads one to one if you have this collapse time to a diffusion equation, so to the fact that charged particles should emit. But this is a long debate, and I absolutely respect the point of view of Penrose, and uh, somehow I also hope that he will come soon with a uh, comprehensive theory without, uh, without energy non-conservation. But I'm, obviously I'm a fan of radiation as well, like you. Amazing. Um, when you feel like uh, getting that in depth, um, it would be amazing if you would come back to this club and um, and chat with us more. Because what you mentioned about dark energy, 
was deeper than I was going to go, but it was something that I was also looking into because there's this theory and they utilize it more for cosmology, but I know that they're using the Hadron Collider to test uh, some of it, but it's the rainbow gravity theory that different wavelengths of light, light have um, different gravitational pull or different, different gravity, um, force of gravity, so or gravitational pull um, is the best way to say that. Um, so I was thinking about the electromagnetic activity and it's been hypothesized that there might be a little bit of light generated from that electromagnetic activity um, and, and that that could have something to do with quantum gravity. Um, so I would, I, I'll just land it there and not even go any deeper. Um, but if you'd be open to coming back to this club and, and sh sharing some more time and energy, it would be very much appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm open to discussions, obviously. And, uh, and also I said, I, I will leave the email and, uh, if you, we want to discuss, uh, I'm, I'm here. So I'm absolutely open and happy to, I'm really happy that, uh, I could interest you and, and it's very interesting by the, by the way, what, uh, these points that you that you raised. Thank you so uh, much. I just um, tried. You're amazing. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. It's almost two hours that we are here. So I wanted to check with you. Um, you know, you probably need to leave. It's getting late for you. Um, so I wanted to check in with you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if there are not uh, urgent questions, my unfortunately, I, I forgot to put my email directly on the first slide. Uh, indeed, it's, it's very simple. It's my name, christian.pishikia at craft, uh, which is my institute.it, but I will write it in the in the chat now. So, yes, um, I, I'm in Rome, so here is 10 o'clock. Uh, maybe uh, we can address if there are not very urgent questions. Uh, you can uh, you can contact me privately or, I don't know, tell me. Yes, that's, and people can also reach out to me. I can share um, the you know, I can share then the questions with you or the email with you. So, yeah, feel free, everyone, to reach out to us. And um, we really appreciate, Christian, the time you um, took for explaining everything so thoroughly. No, I, I do. I do. I appreciate your interest. I am grateful to for being here. It's, uh, it's a wonderful experience. So thank to you. Yes, thank you so much and enjoy your weekend and the rest of your summer and thank you everyone for asking questions, interacting. This was a wonderful um, experience. So we all, I appreciate everyone here and again, special thanks to you, Christian. And uh, maybe later in the year, can invite you back. Uh, it was such an honor. Thank you so it's much. It's my honor. It's my honor. Thank you and thank everybody for, for the questions and for the participation. Thank you, Christian. Bye. Wonderful talk. Thank care. you. Bye bye. Thank, thank you. you. Bye.
Bye, everyone. I'll close the room in three, Ew, two, bye. one. Bye. bye.